Well, around these parts in the spring, uh, you're likely to hear tornado alarms. And uh, that happens quite often uh, because we live in Tornado Valley. But those alarms don't go off just to tell us that a power, powerful tornado is nearby. Uh, those alarms go off telling us that we are in danger and we are to take shelter. Well, if you remember last week at the first part of chapter two, Peter strongly warns us, sounds the alarm, if you will, regarding false teachers and how their teaching impedes our spiritual growth and even more is destructive. And so we want to see today, Peter continues sounding the alarm as he profiles more and more these false teachers, letting us know that we are in fact in danger of their message as it's brought to us. The question must be asked, why did Peter spend 22 verses describing and warning us of false teachers? And I want to make sure that we uh, pray for our sister uh, right now. Father, I lift up a sister who's a part of our congregation who's not feeling well. God, would you care for her and those who are caring for her uh, even now? Father, you are merciful beyond all compare. Restore her body in Christ's name. Amen. But he spends a bulwark of time letting us know that there is a real danger for us. He's not telling us just to be aware that there's false teachers, just to be aware that there's a false message. Much more than that, he is showing us, highlighting that these teachers were at one point a part of the church. If you remember, they were among the church. And now these teachers are apostates. That means they were claiming to be a part of Christ and now they have denied Christ. And so Peter is warning the church that we are liable to such things as well. So keep this in mind as we work through this passage. Because beloved, all of us are liable to be victims of apostate as well. And that is why he is sounding the alarm. So if we are going to grow in the knowledge of Christ, like he, he bolsters in us in chapter 1. He starts with the gospel. He wants us to remember the gospel, to, to grow in these things so that we would not be persuaded by false doctrine. We need to remember the truth so that we're able to recognize deceitfulness and error. And this is really the undercurrent of chapters 1 and chapters 2 in 2 Peter. Know the gospel, grow in the gospel, and do not fall victim to the, the teaching of false teachers. The main idea, the summary, as best I can uh, uh, kind of point it out in its fine point, is simply this. And I hope you can remember it this week. It's like a bite-sized main idea. Be careful not to go astray forsaking the right way. Be careful, beloved, not to go astray forsaking the right way. And we'll unpack what that right way is and what it looks like to forsake it. We will consider three questions today to avoid being led astray. And uh, we're gonna get these from the text. 
as we work through it. But the first one is this. What is the pedigree of these false teachers? What are they made of? What is their motive? What is their anatomy? Uh, Secondly, what are they teaching? How can we discern what it is that they're teaching? And then lastly, beloved, how do we as Christians respond to their teaching? And I want to make sure we connect Second uh, Peter with some similarities in the book of Jude. Because we're going to be kind of thumbing back and forth between Second Peter and Jude. And so if you want to go ahead and put a thumb there, uh, you would be good to do that. Uh, that first question, what is their pedigree, kind of comes from verses 10 through 16. And Peter lays out four components of their depravity. And so we're going to look at those four components here today. The first one found in verse 10, they are boldly arrogant. These false teachers are boldly arrogant. Look with me in 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now consider the posture of these false teachers. They are headstrong, willful, arrogant. Peter describes them as bold and arrogant. And you would think that this would be enough, but it's not for Peter. He actually provides an example of just how arrogant they are. Notice with me there in verse 10. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the glorious ones in the Greek is the word doxe. It simply means glorious or the glories of. So who is he referring to here? Who are these glorious ones? Well, admittedly, there is a scholarly debate about that very question. Some would say it's the apostles, though I don't think Peter would refer to himself as a glorious one. Uh, Some say angels and some even say Christ since he is the glory of glories. However, I think it's probably safest to assume that these glorious ones here are referring to uh, fallen angels. And, and here's why I say this. I already mentioned the similarities between 2 Peter and Jude. And I'm going to have Jude verses 8 through 10 up on the screen uh, for us to kind of build this argument out. But here's what God's word says starting in verse 8 of the book of Jude. Yet in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So that very similar phrase there. Verse 9, but here's the example Jude gives. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So these false teachers blasphemed the glorious ones. And the example here given is Michael, the archangel, who would not even bring a a judgment against the devil, the fallen angel himself. And and so if we look at uh, verses 10 and 11, we see that they did not, these false teachers, tremble at blaspheming the glorious ones. And then it goes to angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, meaning the glorious ones, before the Lord. 
So it appears that he's referring to the humility of an angel who would dare not blaspheme or judge an angel, but he would leave it up to God himself to do the judging. All judgment belongs to God. Peter here refers to fallen angels as glorious ones, and that might trip us up a a little bit, but as Douglas Moo, who's a, a faithful New Testament commentator says, these fallen angels still bear the impress of their glorious origin. And so it appears that these false teachers were so pronounced in their wickedness that they would deny these evil angels even benefit of persuading them of their evilness, thinking that these evil angels could persuade them to be influenced by their behavior. And this actually fits what's called Epicureanism, which many scholars believe was the entanglement that these false teachers were in. Epicureans believed in the immaterial world and angels and and God or gods, but they had a low view and, and did not believe that angels impacted the way that they lived. So they even slandered these glorious ones. Now, however you interpret this passage, isn't the point clear that Peter is drawing out? These false teachers are audaciously arrogant. They do not tremble at those who are more powerful than them or who have a higher rank than they do. These men rush to blaspheme and to slander. That's what blaspheme is, is to uh, misrepresent uh, maliciously the intent of someone else. These men would rush to blaspheme angels where angels, good angels, dare not tread. That's the idea that Peter is driving out here. These Angels, and Michael being the example, exercise humility, but these false teachers did not. They are also instinctually arrogant. Look with me in 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are arrogant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Peter says they are not like the angels because they are like animals. They are controlled by their impulses, by their emotions, and not by the Holy Spirit of God. So they spew these blasphemes because they don't know what it is that they're talking about. Uh, their, Their knowledge comes from their own will, and they spout off whatever they want whenever they want. And look what it says here in the text. They were born to be caught. They were born to be caught and ultimately destroyed. Animals roam freely in the wild until their appointed time of death. And that is what Peter is essentially saying here. Do you remember what it said last week? Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Uh, The judgment of God is not asleep against them. They will be destroyed. And it's not just a future destruction. Look what it says in 13. They're suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. That's a, an active suffering in their destruction. Even now, these false teachers have judgment on them as their lives are destructive. And then look at the third point, uh, verse 13. They're deceitfully sensual. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you church. They have eyes full of adultery 
insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Now, all sin is done in darkness. We would recognize that, right? We were in darkness, but we have been brought into Christ's marvelous light. But these guys are reveling. They, They love sinful pleasure in the daytime. There is no shame to them. They're bringing last night's party to lunch. And they're living this way in front of the body. And notice what Peter says. He calls them blots and blemishes. He's referring to them as stains on the church. And as we'll see here in a couple of weeks, we're the opposite of those stains. We're to be called not blemishes, not blots, as we'll see in two weeks. So he is pointing out what these guys are amidst the body. Now, how exactly are they blots and blemishes? Well, look what he says. They revel in being deceptive while they feast with the church. This could be a common community group, a common meal that they're having with other believers. Many scholars believe this is referring to the agape feast that the early church participated in. Uh, when the church would gather together and recall how Christ would have meals with his followers and with his disciples, sometimes attached to the Lord's Supper. But the point that Peter is making is that these false teachers came to feasts with different intentions. They had intentions driven in the hearts of uh, each of their souls. And, And look what those intentions are in verse 14. Eyes full of adultery. They didn't stumble into adultery. They're seeking it out like ravenous wolves, restless in their sin, boundless in their lusts. This is what is driving them to the feast, not to celebrate the glories of God, but to see who's sitting around the table that they might take advantage of them. Insatiable sin means that they're never satisfied. They always want more. They keep going back to see if there's someone new sitting around the table, exploring constantly their perversions. And look who they are enticing, the unsteady souls that they sit across. That's who's in their crosshairs. Capturing weak women, is, as Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they entice and they seduce because they're driven by the self. That is the driving factor. The, their self is the most important part of their life. And we see that even developed more in the last point. They are trained in greed. Look what it says at the end of 14. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing. Beloved, just as we are to train ourselves in godliness, like Peter talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, these men were training themselves in greed. That word train is hymnasio and in the Greek. It's where we get our word gymnasium, where you go and you train, you go and you exercise, you go and develop. Well, they, they had developed into experts in greed. They were trained in this. And look how Peter describes them. They're accursed, meaning the judgment of God 
remains on them. And that little phrase should be highlighted in all of our Bibles. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Now, Peter illustrates this by taking us into the deep waters of the Old Testament. By going all the way to the story of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And and Balaam really serves as the prototypical false teacher. And Jude says the very same thing in his letter as well. And we're not going to turn to Numbers 22. I encourage you to read it later on. But as a summary and as a reminder of that story, Balaam was a pagan prophet who was hired by the king of Moab, whose name is Balak. And Balak was worried about Israel because of the size of Israel. He was convinced that Israel was going to defeat the Moabites. And he feared, he feared that this was going to come about. And so he summoned Balaam to come and to put a curse on Israel. And ultimately, Balaam went and was summoned by Balak. And every time Balaam attempted to curse Israel, he prophesied a blessing over Israel instead. Frustrated that he couldn't receive the promised reward that Balak had if he gave a curse over Israel, he ultimately, instead of going a direct way to curse them, he let Balak in on a little trick to indirectly curse Israel. Uh, We see this in the scriptures. Balaam eventually gave Balak the advice to seduce Israel with foreign women to fornicate with, and which would ultimately lead them to worship other gods. And that's exactly what happened when you read Numbers 25. Israel fell into the curse because they began trusting in these foreign women. And we see in Numbers 31 that It was, in fact, Balaam's word that was given to Balak to trick Israel into this. And Balaam was ultimately killed, as we see in Numbers 31. But he got his temporary financial reward, which was really driving Balaam the entire time. So Peter connects the greed of Balaam with here these false teachers' greed. And so look what happened with Balaam. For deciding to go with Balak, he goes into detail in verse 16. He was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with, human, with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, if you remember in the story, chapter 22, God was angered at Balaam for going with Balak. Uh, he at first said no, and then ultimately his desire for that reward drove him into going to Balak. And so what did God do? God sent an angel of the Lord to be an adversary against Balaam because of his choice, his perverse way. And Balaam, as he was going to Balak, he could not see the angel. Do you guys remember this story from Vacation Bible School and hopefully much more recent than that? But the donkey could see. He could see the angel. And he veered off the road three times both in trying to care for his master and perhaps even a fear of the Lord, recognizing that the angel of the Lord stood against him. Well, the third time the donkey veered off the road, Balaam beat the donkey, and the donkey spoke up for himself and says, have I not been faithful all my life? He spoke with a human voice, have I not been faithful all my life? 
Is this the habit of the way that I treat you? And then God opened Balaam's eyes to see that the angel of the Lord was standing there. And this is what the angel of the Lord said. I have come to oppose you because of your perverse way. Balaam was rebuked by his donkey and then the angel of the Lord. And he kept going ultimately to receive his prize. And and Peter, no doubt, is intentionally referencing an animal who rebuked rightly here. After saying that the false teachers themselves are wild animals, here we have an animal who is speaking forward the truth to an animal. And in a sense, the donkey is more faithful than even the prophet who was an animal. So this arrogance that Peter is driving home, this sensuality, this greed, are the things for the church to avoid. Uh, Those who preach these things, we do not follow these people and we do not walk in these ways. Now, the second question I wanna bring up to us today is how will we identify them by what they teach? What is the content of their teaching? And there's three dangers of their teaching that are given here in the scriptures. The first is found in verse 17. Their teaching is empty. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. If you remember last week, there's angels, fallen angels, who have a a gloomy darkness reserved for them at the judgment of God. And these false teachers will be in a similar or the same place as those fallen angels. And look what their teaching consists of, nothing. People come to them thirsty, yet they leave thirsty as well. They offer nothing that satisfies the soul. It's like a guy who goes and uh, who uh, asks a woman to marry him, gets down on one knee, gets the box out, opens the box, and there's no ring inside. Uh, You can say that there's a promise, but there's no commitment to the other person. These false teachers were only committed uh, to themselves and making sure that they got theirs. Just a big empty promise. No hope for a future. That's what was behind their teaching. He says it's a mist driven by a storm. You see a mist, it comes, it goes. It, it goes away quickly. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes. If you remember in Acts chapter 17... Paul is at Mars Hill, and he is debating the philosophers of the day. He's debating the Stoics, and he is debating the Epicureans. And the Epicureans are constantly uh, finding and enamored with new ideas that come up in the culture, and those new ideas are the traps that they fall into. In fact, the gospel was one of those new ideas that they liked for a little while. But if we are to think about the church over the past 2,000 years, brothers and sisters meeting all around the church, meditating, studying the word of God, praying, considering what God has said, we would see very clearly that there is a one true church that does not adapt or accept new teaching. It has been the same teaching for 2,000 years. That's why confessions, uh, creeds are so helpful for the church because they they summarize what God's word has said in proper context. 
And, and the church holds to these things. These false teachers are bringing up things that come up for a moment and they go away quickly. But we, beloved, hold to the ancient paths, to the apostles' teaching, to the narrow road, to the ordinary means of grace. We do not veer from the right or to the left. And we've seen for 2,000 years faithful saints under the authority of God's word, saved, joyful, being made into the image of Christ and taking the gospel to the nations. James chapter 1 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, beloved, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That word meekness is that submissive, being willing to submit without resistance to the authority over you. So we listen to the word of God with meekness, eager to hear it, eager to trust in it, eager to believe that God's word and what he says is better. And he is the life-giving truth, the living water, as opposed to these waterless springs. Look what Peter then says, their teaching is enticing, verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. So not only is their words empty, but they're loud mouths. They're bragging about themselves and they do it in order to seduce with their sensual appetites those who have just escaped from living in air. Perhaps many of you are familiar with the church movement out of Australia called Hillsong. Be very careful. They have moved in with greed and sensuality, seducing brand new converts in the faith, promoting a gospel that sounds at times near enough to the gospel, but in the end leads to death. And a lot of these teachers have been exposed. I, exposed, I think about Carl Lentz, who was caught, what, a year ago in his sensualities, sitting at tables with people and bringing this destructive approach to the church forward. We are to be careful. If you're a student at DBU, be careful. There are new teachings out there that are trying to seduce and pervert the gospel of Christ. Waterless springs built on emotion but no substance. I want you to hear what the apostle would be saying to us today, whose name is Peter. And look what it says. These false teachers, they're appealing to those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. Uh, one commentator, a commentator, Shriner, New Testament faithful Baptist, he says it'd probably be easier to understand this sentence this way. They just escaped these are people that just escaped from living in air. He's talking about new Christians, those who just came to uh, faith. So I want to remind us, uh, those of us who are new to the faith, those who are undiscipled, uh, be careful who you listen to. Uh, church, if you've been walking with Christ for a long time, grab a person who is new to the faith and begin discipling them on how to discern what the truth is according to the word of God. This is our responsibility as those who have been walking in the faith for some time. This is not a new tactic. If you remember back in the garden, the serpent 
is already challenging at the very beginning of the scriptures, the word of God. Did God really say that? Would God really do that? Is that how God really is? God has said exactly who he is and exactly what he is going to do. He reminds us exactly of what his mercies are and the dangers of false teaching. If you remember the Proverbs, there is a a way for folly and there is a way of wisdom. There are two paths. Walk the path of wisdom. Have your ear tethered to the word of God and you will be kept from the way of destruction. And we must listen to Christ because Christ is the one who sets us free, John chapter 8. And that's exactly what we must be. We must be set free because look at the warning he gives. The last warning, the teaching that the false teachers give is enslaving. And we must be set free from it. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So these false teachers have promised freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Look what it says there in verse 20. These teachers had some knowledge of God. It says, for after they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in the same defilements that they said that they had escaped. So they, for a moment, believed that the defilements of the world had been overcome. But ultimately, as we saw last week, they had denied the master who bought them. Now, I want us to reflect on that for a moment That means these teachers had heard the gospel. They had got wrapped up for a moment at least in its appeal. Probably because it's a new idea that they had never heard. Their hearts were persuaded for a time. They made the decision to, to be a part of the church and to make the same confession They probably saw the church and the way that they loved each other and the way that they sacrificed for each other and they wanted to be a part of it. They were convinced for a moment that this is the right way. Maybe even some dramatic changes in their life. If they were from among the church, we have to believe that they were baptized. We have to believe that they were partaking in the Lord's Supper for a time. Yet, they were keeping their head and their eyes on these waterless springs as they returned over and over again back to their old forms of teaching and to the things that they really wanted. They abandoned the confession. It's like what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, they're always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. It's like what John says in 1 John chapter 2, they went out as apostles, but they ended up not being from us apostates. And look what Peter says about them in 21. For if it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from that holy command delivered to them. So this superficial response to the gospel, ultimately refusing the gospel is significant in the eyes of God. Hearing the way of righteousness, 
that Christ bled and died for them, that he freed them from their sin and made them righteous and had an inheritance waiting for them in the afterlife. And they knew it. It says knowing it. They knew it. And then they said, no, I'm good. I'd rather not. I'd rather not. I don't think it's true any longer. I, I think that's in fact a bad thing. I hope we would never consider a bad thing what God considers a good, a good and glorious thing. In the very heart is this impar- unpardonable sin because they had denied the testimony of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit of God, teaching them what the gospel was as we see in Mark 3 verse 29. We see it again in Hebrews chapter six. Those who had claimed to know Christ deserted him and they are not able to go back to him because it was proven that they were never really of him. You hold to the confession or you don't. You hold to Christ or you don't. You're regenerate or you're not. That's what Peter is teaching us here. These men declared darkness to be light and sin to be freedom. And it's better for them if they had never known the way of righteousness. There's two ways, the way of righteousness and then there's the way of Balaam going astray. And look, he ends with a a proverb, Proverbs 26 and verse 22. The dog returns to its own vomit And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is who the teachers actually are. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. They might have looked for a time as if they were Christians, but in the end, what was, or who they are, who they were, is actually revealed. They want the vomit. They want the mud. They think the mud is more valuable than the precious blood. And this is driving everything that they're doing around the church. And it begs the question, beloved, how do we respond to this? And that's the third question I want us to ask. There's just the the application for us to consider uh, these verses today because they're heavy verses how do we respond? A couple of things to consider before we pray. I want us to expect false teachers. False teachers are going to be around us. They might even come from within us. I don't say that as a scare tactic. I say that for us to be prudent and diligent. There is nothing new under the sun. Do you guys remember that series? It's the cycle of how Satan tries to infiltrate the people of God. I don't know what it looks like, but in the days ahead, I think we have a a responsibility to be more prudent in our teaching. Yes, here in the pulpit, in every single place that uh, we're, we're teaching and equipping, but I would even say in our ABFs. In every place that someone is given the responsibility to teach God's word. We want to train, we want to approve, we want to appoint. The book of James said not many should teach. And so we at least wanna see a passage like this, 22 verses. 
and go, there is something that Peter is trying to say to us as a people that we really need to listen to. So we wanna grow in our faithfulness in this. Would you pray for us to do that? If you're a teacher of God's word, would you take your own soul to task, to check your motives, to see what it is that you're teaching, to see if you're teaching something that you think might be different so that we can have a conversation because these are important things. Number two, do not be deceived by the persuasion of the false teachers. Here's the reality. Sexuality, um, pride, money are really enticing because it gets at our flesh. It pokes and prods at our flesh and it tries to, to lure us in. Paul writes to Titus in chapter one and he talks about, especially elders, the responsibility to identify false doctrines and teachers and to rebuke them, to guard the flock from them and then ultimately, if they would listen, to bring them back into the fellowship. But these things are used by Satan because he knows exactly what our flesh desires. Do not fall victim to these things as the age of technology is exploding, you can listen to these little sound bites on TikTok. Or I've never listened, or whatever it's called, but like YouTube or whatever it is. And you can get a snippet of something and it can bring you into a world in which you are introduced to something that has nothing to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be prudent. Don't be enamored by how one looks. Or, or, or the dynamic personality that they might have. Test everything they say by the word of God, like we talked about last week, being Bereans. And then count their life. How are they living? That's the incomplete nature of listening to someone online, good and bad. You don't know how they live. All the more onus put on the elders and the leaders of the church to be faithful amongst you. God, help us to be faithful. So the question must be asked, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? If you're unsure, if it's a good teacher, please come and ask us and talk and we'd love to have a conversation with you. These are things that are really important for the soul so as to not go outside the right way. We'd love to help you discern those things. Last, uh, thirdly, list, uh, learn Christian truth. I can't emphasize this enough. We want you to learn what the Bible says. We want you to exercise your faith. We want you to grow in knowledge, a knowledge of Christ that fixes your soul on God, that keeps you safe. Do you remember what Peter says in, in chapter one? He says, um, he has granted us his knowledge of him, has called us to his own glory and excellence. Is given to us very great and precious promises so that through those promises you may be, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We want to grow in the knowledge of Christ. We want to be tethered to the gospel, remembering the glorious news that has been brought to us. We can't earn this. We can't work out uh, through our own flesh this salvation, but by God's grace through his spirit, he has given us these very real promises. And we want you to know those promises and we want you to walk in those promises. We want you uh, to be kept 
safe as you journey in this life so that you would make your calling and your election sure. And the fourth thing I want us to see, if you just flip back to Jude, is to have mercy on those who are ensnared. So Jude 17 through 23, I told you Jude and 2 Peter are very, very similar. Jude just kind of expounds on some things. There are people that you know and love who are ensnared by false teachers presently in this world perhaps that you'll sit with at Thanksgiving or that you'll have uh, interaction with here in the coming months. And this is what Jude says. But he says, but you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Look what he says in 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. If you know anyone that's caught up, false teaching, don't give up. Take the gospel to them mercifully. Remind them of the glorious Christ. Remind them that there is an eternal life waiting for them in Christ. And it's far better than any promises that false teachers can give to us today. So I, I, I end with this. Who are you listening to? You listen to Christ, his word, my sheep hear my voice. They come after me, John 10. Or do you listen to those who despise the word of God? God has made provision for us in Christ to listen to his word. Think about the most known and simple passage of scripture, but I don't want it to be lost on you today. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the opposite of every characteristic of these false teachers. If false teachers forsake the way, they go the way of Balaam, Jesus says, I am the way. And that's what the church was called the very first of its conception. The way, the truth, and the life, it's found in Christ. False teachers speak lies. But John 14 says Jesus is the truth. He's not greedy, but he's sacrificial. He's not arrogant, but he's humble. Uh, He's he's not adulterous. He's not sitting around the table uh, looking to commit adultery, but he is faithful to his wife, the bride, the church. His word is true to us, beloved, and he will be our faithful husband. False teachers, there's destruction and gloom reserved for them, but Jesus is the life. And Jude says, we pray and we wait for the mercy of the Lord that leads us to eternal life. Stay the course, hold the word, bury it in your mind, remind each other of it, and may God guard us for the inheritance that he has promised to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh Lord, would you keep us on the right way, the ancient path. Would you help us to remember how we got on the path itself, Father? It's through Christ who died for us, 
forgave us of sin, imputes righteousness to us, and promises to guard us all the days, Father. We will fall off the path, but for you, God, keep us safe. Guard us as your own flock. And Father, come quickly. Send the Lord Jesus quickly back to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.